Welcome to Crash Chords Autographs. This week, Matt speaks with the owners of Continental Recording Studio based in Long Island City, Matt and Mike Gervaisa. With Mike serving as the company's chief engineer and producer, while Matt focuses on the business development side of things, the two brothers have grown their studio into a thriving outlet for artists of all kinds, right in the heart of New York City. With our host Matt, they discuss the origin of the studio, their background as musicians, and the struggles faced by a physical recording space in the modern music landscape. They also chat about the variety of artists they have recorded, the future of the studio, and their presence on YouTube with a new series called Uncomfortable Covers. And so, without further ado, here's presenting your host, Matt Storm, and Matt and Mike Gervaisa. And welcome to another episode of Crash Chords Autographs. I, of course, am Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon, and I'm here at Continental Recording Studio with the gentlemen who own the shop. I'll let them speak for themselves and introduce themselves as well. Why don't we start with Matt? Hey everybody, this is Matt here. Happy to be on, on this podcast talking to Matt. It's a lot of Matts in here, so hope you all don't get confused. <laughs> I'm Mike. I'm the lead engineer here at Continental. How you all doing out there? Um, so I appreciate you guys taking the time to chat with me today. Um, I guess let's get started with where how Continental got started. Um, this, I'll be honest, this is the first time I'm actually interviewing people who own a recording studio. I've been in many, but I've not actually interviewed anybody about it. So how did Continental come to be? Mike, I think you better kick this one off. Since, uh, uh, it's, uh, it, the, the history is definitely, uh, it goes back, and, and the beginnings of it were in our parents' basement back in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. We were recording our own music then, and uh, you know, with minimal uh, equipment, um, and we started basically recording our own, our friends' bands and stuff, and uh, just... Fast forward 2008, we moved in. We moved to Brooklyn, and we were doing the same thing out of a rehearsal space in Brooklyn. And a band that we were sharing the space with called Indians, they liked what they heard and wanted us to record them. We started recording them, and it kind of snowballed from there. Yeah, definitely. Just to build up what Mike was saying, uh, you know, it definitely all happened organically. We started out in Long Island recording our high school bands, our parents' basement. Mike showed a real proclivity towards recording. And, you know, really blossomed from there. Everything throughout the years was word of mouth. I mean, until recently, we hadn't done any advertising, which was, you know, kind of crazy. We're just a bunch of musicians turned engineers, turned professional recording studio. Um, you know, there's definitely a lot more than that. That's just kind of like the broad overview. Yeah. But, you know, we get more into specifics as we go. But, yeah, it started as passion for recording and passion for music and grew from there. And so you guys say you have a passion for music. Do you guys play instruments as well yourselves? Yeah. Yeah, that's how that's how it all started. Really, um, I started playing bass like like seventeen years ago or so. Mike yeah. started playing guitar a few years before me. We both uh, were taught by this local guitar guru legend, and who is an old hippie guy named Larry Logan. He lived in his parents' yeah. basement. He chain smoked cigarettes. <laughs> I mean, we've come home like twelve years old, like reeking of cigarette smoke for like a week. But you know, he was really amazing. He was completely self-taught and. Yeah, he taught us everything, and then growing up, you know, we're really into punk rock and rock and roll and everything, and 
we were very fortunate to be able to play CBGBs a whole bunch of times before yeah. they shut down. And yeah, so really, you know, we started as musicians in our own bands, writing songs, and the recording really, you know, grew out of that, out of, out of the necessity to get it down on, on tape, yeah. or really on zeros and ones, but anyway. Yeah, man. And <laughs> so what kind of tech did you start with? Because obviously you have a full studio and soundboard now, yeah. we'll get into that in a minute, but how did, what kind of tech did you start with when you were in back in the day? So it, back when, when we first started doing this, Pro Tools wasn't really too affordable yet for the uh, consumer. Um, we didn't really have too much knowledge of DAWs yet, and the first things we started on were these digital all-in-one studios, so mm -hmm. like a Korg D3200. Uh, D1600 was the first one I had, and that that was a 16-channel. Just like, I think it was eight ins with, like, Mike Priest built in. It had a mixer on it, so you could record to the di the hard disk inside it digitally, and then you could mix it down and then print it right to a CD. So oh, that's, wow. That's what we started with, and then it kind of began where, you know, once I started to learn about gear, I started, I actually ended up eventually going to Shelter Island Sound. I got an internship there with Steve Adabo, who's a great producer, and he taught me valuable, valuable things about engineering, about gear. And once I started learning what the real gear was, I kind of started trading up. Mm -hmm. You know, I started selling pieces of gear that I started with and then buying in new pieces of gear, you know, selling off two or three mics that were like 100 bucks each and then getting a $300 mic. And then, right. then eventually Pro Tools became affordable and <laughs> kind of... That's around the time we started making the transition into uh, the real world of it all. Yeah. Right. And so now, how long have you been in this studio space for? Uh, we've been here close, getting close to five years now, right? Yeah. Four and a half years. Yeah. So in November, it'll be five. We were in another location in Long Island City for a year before that. And then mm -hmm. we were in Greenpoint at the Pencil Factory building where really it all first started. Like That was the rehearsal space yeah, was at Greenpoint. Exactly. So if my math adds up, that should take us to, back to 2008. Yeah. So. And um, when you moved here, from one place in Long Island City to another, you did you have all of the gear that I'm looking at now? And did you have to move all of, of this stuff? Yeah. I imagine that's <laughs> not easy to do even for a short distance. Yeah, I don't want to do it again for as long as possible. <laughs> yeah, you're looking to stay put at this yeah, point. Yeah, for sure. It was definitely a space too. Yeah, it's a great space. It was a huge undertaking to, you know, we had it's everything in here is hand wired. Mike had, you know, wired in the entire setup, so mm -hmm. had to rewire everything. Had to, you know, get the board through the door, which was you know a task in itself. Yeah, it spent a few hours up on its side, like wedged in the door. <laughs> oh wow. We ended up having to take the legs off. Yeah. Um, so, uh, when you guys went to school, were, did you go to school for audio engineering, or is it something you like did on the side besides what your studies were? I, I did a little bit. I went to um, Hofstra University, and I took some audio for radio classes, and there was a couple studio classes in there, and at that point, I had already amassed enough knowledge that I kind of was just, you know, they were like, oh set up a drum kit so I was like I already knew how to do it you know right sure <laughs> I already knew how to mic it like mic up a drum kit mic up a guitar amp I already knew it but I learned a lot there still and then uh, you know eventually I, I found the internship with Steve Adabo and, and that's really that was my school really yeah. for it all <laughs> yeah sure and what about you, Matt? Um, well, engineering, really, I'm like I don't, you know, wouldn't call myself like a, a professional engineer in the sense that Mike is. I focus more on the business development side of things. I've Got it. Been around the studio, you know, for many years, so I picked up a lot through that, and also I, you know, worked a live sound job for many years as well. So I have a lot of live sound experience, but. 
you know, I've definitely, you know, didn't go to school for audio, just was around playing music my whole life. But through being here, I assembled a, enough credits that I just actually uh, got um, accepted for voting membership on the Grammy committee, which I'm really excited oh, about. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's very cool. If only the Grammys were still relevant. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, hey. Hey, you know. Um, okay, let's talk a little bit uh, about the artists that you guys work with. I've, I've seen some really cool stuff, including a really cool cover video was uh, a, a video of a cover song that one of your, the bands that you guys work with did was sent to me in the press pack. But mm. um, what kinds of bands do you work with? Do you have a preference to work with some kind of certain kinds of bands or artists, or are you open to any engineering for anything you know where where do you sit musically in the studio definitely open to engineering you know anything i like i like working you know with artists and like with music that's outside my comfort zone and mm -hmm. i like the challenge um i guess my comfort zone is really rock hard rock indie um i do plenty of hip-hop uh, like I said, anything that comes my way, I'm excited about. Yeah, I would just add that you know the space we have definitely lends itself to recording full bands. So we do a lot of live band tracking yeah. sessions. We do a lot of full length albums. Um, you know, and I think that's one of the benefits of being outside of the Manhattan bubble is that we you know can have a large enough space where we can do full band, full drums, and not have to you know kill the client in terms of the pricing, which you know. As everybody knows, I'm sure a lot of the big recording studios have been going under in Manhattan. Sure, so of course. Yeah. It's moving to the you know the periphery, I guess. Well, because so many people are trying to do it on their own too, and yeah. to a certain degree, depending on what your sound is, you can do it on your Absolutely. own a lot more easily than you could before. Yeah, which is kind of the danger. Um, talking about your influences specifically, since you guys are musicians as well as. Um, uh, you know, a studio as well. What would you say were the kinds of bands and artists you listened to coming up that kind of influenced maybe your taste, or if there are specific producers or record or engineers that might have influenced that as well? Yeah, I'll start that one off. I mean, my musical tastes. I mean, we, we were fortunate to have parents who were very into music, so we grew up on the Beatles, on Led Zeppelin, the Rolling mm -hmm. Stones, all that great stuff. You know, so listening to that from like four years old on was a you know definitely an education itself, but also. Um, you know, we were fortunate enough, too, to be exposed to a lot of great music in the 90s. So we were listening to, like, you know, Green Day on cassette tape when sure. it was coming out, like, 94, 95, Rage Against the Machine, Smashing Pumpkins. So, you know, that definitely, you know, looking back now, I still find myself stuck in the 90s a little <laughs> bit sometimes. I'm sure a lot of people in this age bracket could say the same thing. Um, but, yeah, that's that's my take. And I, I named every band I was going to name. <laughs> <laughs> I, get, I do remember it was Dookie. Like, when I heard that record... I was like, I really want to like, like I want to know how they got that sound, and yeah. I want to be able to to make that sound. And uh, same thing with the Smashing Pumpkins and Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. And then once I started like really studying producers, you know, the first ones I would naturally go towards was like Butch Vig. Butch know? Vig, he's the one. Of um, course. If you haven't, not to recommend other podcasts on my podcast, but if you <laughs> haven't heard the Nerdist podcast interview that Chris Hardwick did with Butch Vig, I highly recommend it. Um, to check that he out. goes pretty deep talking about garbage and some other stuff. I've been a big garbage fan since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And uh, like Butch Vig is one of those producers that for me anyway defined what it was cool what it was like to be rock and roll and be a producer like yeah. he was a great musician but he's also a great producer yes absolutely and like it was the first producer that to me was like a rock star because he was mm -hmm. you know yeah. like there were others of course back in the day too but he was the first one i remember growing up in the 90s that i was like that guy like if i could be yeah. an engineer or producer i want to be like that guy absolutely um and i'm also someone uh, kind of a child of the 80s and 90s i grew up listening to a lot of alt uh, alt rock 
rock and alternative from the 90s that now is mostly pop, bands like Third Eye Blind and Eve Six and Matchbox 20, who at the time were pre-revolutionary for, for kind of uh, pop rock and modern rock, and then they just kind of petered off into pop music, which is mm -hmm. fine. I don't really have anything against that. It's just, you know, it's one where the sound kind of shifted that way. Like, all, I feel like alt-rock still exists, but not in the same form it did in the 90s, yeah. you know? Alt-rock was just alternative bands, you know, bands that were an alternative to punk and metal were alt-rock then. Mm -hmm. Now it's like, it's you know, genres have gotten kind of crazy, and so I feel like everything sure. is super hyper-specific. But um, why don't you tell us a little bit now specifically about some of the bands you've worked with, specifically here that you're fond of, that well, you would recommend to our listeners? I mean, a jumping-off point from what we were just talking about is, like, I do agree with what you're saying about, like, a lot of that music, it doesn't exist on the surface anymore if mm -hmm. you look at the top 40 and you look at what's there. But we actually have this great band, Dark Moon Apache, that we're doing an album with. And they, yeah, they have that kind of real grunge influence vibe, like mm -hmm. where they really took, and it's it's their own thing too. They took punk, then they took metal, and they kind of blended them together. And that's just yeah, they're not out there calling themselves a grunge band. They're just a rock band. And right. their album, uh, we're just we did an EP, uh, which came out uh, last Halloween, mm -hmm. and we just were just about done tracking an LP so that hopefully will be out by the end of this year awesome very cool and um yeah yeah there's I mean there's tons of stuff I mean back in like 2011 2012 we recorded this great band called the Highway Gimps and their <laughs> album She actually yeah this is it was a fun story because you know one day I was got in the car I turned on Q1043 which is a big classic rock radio station um, it was on Sunday, so they were playing their out of the box segment, and mm -hmm. sure enough, I turn on the car, and there's the song that we, you know, we had just released, and I, <laughs> yeah, I, swear, I, I thought I had the CD on for a second. I'm like, this can't be real. <laughs> it, was, it was a really cool feeling. So that's a great album, Highway Gimps. She, um, the Brooklyn What is another great band. Yeah, they uh, did we, a, a real masterpiece. Yeah, really this. great punk album called Hot Wine. Um, it's available on iTunes, Spotify, and I believe they still have some vinyls available out there. So definitely check that out. And with the, these bands, some of the uh, let's start with the bands that you just mentioned. Do you did they come to you? Did you go approach them? Did you like see them at a show and say, "Hey, we have a studio"? Like, how does that chemistry start? Well, Dark Moon Apache, I met the bassist uh, Shay, the former bassist. He, uh, I met him at a show. And I was outside talking to a guy that had played horns on the, um, the Brooklyn What record. And he overheard us talking and he was like, oh, you have a studio. We're like, you know, sorry if I, you know, you, <laughs> you know, I don't mean to interrupt you, but you have a studio. My band's looking to record. And that's pretty much how that happened. And then the Brooklyn What came to us after they were part of the same scene as the Highway Gimps. So we right. recorded the Highway Gimps album. And that's kind of like a big thing of like how we got to this point was word of mouth. It's right. like we do one record, some people would hear it, they like it, they'd want the same kind of thing, you know, they'd want to do the same, mm -hmm. get the same kind of sound with us on their record and kind of just, yeah. <laughs> Have you worked with mostly artists local to New York, New Jersey area? For the most part, yeah. yeah. And um, like when you go to shows, like you said, you met someone at a show. Like I know when I DJ, so besides doing the podcast, I DJ mostly nightlife for burlesque shows. Mm -hmm. I'm starting to, branch out and do, you know, the usual stick, shtick weddings and art gallery openings and that kind of stuff to, to, to make it a more engaging quote-unquote full-time job. My day job is not DJing. I wish it was. Um, but, but that said, um, wow, I just talked myself into a circle. Gotta love being a podcast host. Um, 
Uh, oh yeah, so I when I go to other burlesque shows that I'm not DJing, I'll promote myself. I'll hand out yeah. business cards and talk about like, hey, I work with this person. Um, like I I know like I love your show. I heard about you through this place. When you guys go to just rock shows in the city, do you hand out business cards? Do you approach people? Like if there's like obviously if you know Iron Maiden's rolling into town, <laughs> you're not handing them your card. But like if they roll into town and play a small student like a small show with a bunch of opening acts, will you approach the opening bands and say? hey, or if you're ever interested, or if you know of a band in New York, will you kind of network at a show, a Absolutely. live show? Yeah, especially if, if I see a band that I, really impresses me, mm -hmm. you know, I'll think to myself, oh man, I'd really like to record these guys. Sure. I'll usually approach them then, um, and I mean, hell, if Iron Maiden's in town, why not? Give them <laughs> sure, of course, you, know? you never I mean, know. you got nothing less left to lose. That's <laughs> true, no, absolutely. Um, nothing to lose. <laughs> for sure, yeah. Um, it is not necessarily just diminishing your ability to record them, and more so the fact that I know when I approach artists who I feel are bigger than myself, it's like I get overwhelmed by that kind of stuff. It's hard, mm -hmm. you know, it's, in this day and age, I feel like it's both easier and harder at the same time to promote yourself. Uh, I often talk to a lot of the musicians and, and artists that I've interviewed before about, like, the Facebook conundrum and the so mm -hmm. modern social media era. Right. I imagine that it's both a blessing and a curse for you guys. I mean, I imagine you have a Facebook page and you promote through Facebook. Do you find that that helps drive traffic towards your stuff and your, the artists you support? You know, is it helpful? I'd say it is, but it's just, it definitely entails a really targeted approach, you know. Mm -hmm. Definitely have gotten um, pretty acclimated to using, like, the Facebook, you know, promotion, the, an the paid analytics stuff mm -hmm. and everything. It's, it's, it definitely is essential, especially uh, we just launched our website, con continentalrecording.studio. Awesome. And, um, you know, just driving the, the effort to get people to check out the site, pe get people to, you know, book sessions through the site has definitely benefited from Facebook and from the, yeah. you know, targeted paid promotions. Awesome. And, uh... So, do you guys have a Twitter presence, Instagram, that kind of stuff too, or is it mostly is it just mostly the face the Facebook driving to the website is the focus at the moment? For sure. I mean, we're also active on Instagram. Yeah, we're um, active we have now. a Twitter that's not. I mean, it's it's really hard <laughs> to keep up with all the social media. It's yeah, obviously mm -hmm. it's a full time job in itself. If you sure. have your your Twitter and I don't know, people still use Vine, or you have a Snapchat, and it's like so. You know, it's it's enough. It's enough just to you know record and put out music yeah. on top yeah. of that it's, but it's necessary I mean we definitely we use it as an outlet uh, especially Facebook as a, really as an outlet to kind of you know present stuff that we've worked on sure you know because it's like we've amassed a bit of a following there I mean nothing crazy but still once we finish something and like a band puts it out we'll share it sure or you know if, if someone gets a good review or something it just kind of helps if anyone cares to see it helps them see it right so. i mean the mutual uh, uh promotion machine as i call it like uh, i when i started this podcast i interviewed a lot of indie rappers like michael kill whose t-shirt i'm wearing now michael if you're listening thumbs up <laughs> um who i've become friends with since but like it was because the indie rappers i felt comfortable like i met a lot of them and then it everyone was very supportive in that community like if you did a thing with someone they would promote your thing and their thing mm -hmm. and so like I feel like there's a lot of that to social media like if yeah. you work with people who aren't a giant marketing machine like major celebrities or giant musicians like I don't know Maroon 5 just to name a band I don't care about um, <laughs> you know it it, it, it's much harder to kind of get that mutual admiration but when you're working with smaller independent people I feel like there's more of a community to that because there's more of a nitty gritty to it yeah um Oh, you were going to say something, Matt? Oh, no, I was just going to add, it kind of goes back to the DIY ethos of yeah, the 90s that sure. we were just talking about. You know, it definitely has influenced us a lot. And I mean, that. But, you know, there's also a sense in what you're talking about that, like, everyone's kind of, like, when you, you know, you've 
built a community with people that are kind of all they all have the same goal you know people are all doing the same thing it's mm-hmm. like it's like a bunch of people that are in the same boat we're in they're right. struggling artists they're trying to make their band work they're you know we have friends that have a record store we have friends that you know do all these different things and they're all trying to make it work and sure. we're trying to make it work so there is a sense of support uh you know amongst people yeah i feel like community is still really important to music and some of that gets lost depending on where yeah. you are in the internet space and especially in new york too <laughs> yeah i mean I, I feel like the music scene has changed a lot here but it's hard to tell sometimes like i have a friend who's a bar owner um it's actually a bar i met my wife at because uh, her band plays there it's called the way station and they're on uh in prospect heights okay. on washington avenue and he started as a nerd bar that just was they had a tardis bathroom you know doctor who and and like that was their thing they were a nerd bar and brought people in that way but then they had a stage and they started bringing in bands and now they're kind of known as like this neighborhood local venue for touring acts for for local acts Mm -hmm. and like I love that environment and I feel like growing up there was a lot of that but now I feel like it's a lot rarer to find like a small venue that promotes touring Mm -hmm. local smaller artists Mm -hmm. I just feel like there's not an abundance of spaces for that anymore that's true St. Vitus opened up in Greenpoint that's a great place oh that's awesome yeah Yeah, I'd heard about it I think didn't Dave Grohl do like some after party thing there yeah Yeah, I believe so yeah I think um, yeah after the Grammys or something he'd done I'm sure that gave them a big boost yeah (laughs) I don't know if you guys I mean I'm a big Foo Fighters fan although I didn't love Sonic Highways but it's also because I didn't watch the HBO series the HBO series is awesome and that's what I've heard like so on our podcast we reviewed the album without watching the series because our logic is well the album should still hold up it's Mm -hmm. an album and it does but after watching a couple episodes of the series I haven't seen all of it yet I realize the album is just a collection of the the music from the series the series is the driving point and now it's what makes sense because it it is incredible the the, the Butch Vig episode I watched was like incredible well he's on I think he's he's on on a lot of them yeah yeah, on a lot of them but like the one episode I watched that he was on like I was just so enraptured by it um, they go to Albini's studio in Chicago. That's, oh, that's a good one. That's, <laughs> that's awesome, yeah. Um, and so so I guess that leads to my next question. Do you guys have, like you mentioned Butch, Butch Vig earlier, but there are other studios that you kind of admire that kind of inspire you to move forward, stu- uh, just like the studio you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, are there studios that you look to and go, God, I want to I be like them. I want to do well, the work they've done. The Magic Shop is one for me. Sure, you know, of course. Like, definitely, they're they're a great studio that or they were a great studio that you know kind of embody what we're trying to do you know but they really achieved legendary status but we're trying you know trying to be like it's not even trying to be it's just what we are it's like we're tucked away you know people walking down the street every day we're in an industrial area they don't have any idea that there's records being made in like a little nook in that in that factory building over there and that's definitely that was a big characteristic of that studio so that that's definitely one. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, let's talk a little bit more about the nitty-gritty of making records, because obviously, like I have, as I said off the air, I have a novice, I'll say to be polite, experience with recording records. Um, uh, these days, on on these boards, do you find? Well, first of all, I want to talk about something that actually came up in the Butch Vig interview I listened to. Since we're all fans of his work, I figure referring <laughs> back to him is no problem. Do you find that when you guys are recording an artist's record? Do you give input? Do you hold back input? Do you like being hands-on? Do you like kind of letting them do their own thing? Like, how involved are you in the actual recording process? That's a good question. Um, I really, it really depends on the situation entirely. Um, You know, if they've kind of hired me as a producer, uh, then I'll 
definitely be giving a lot of input in terms of even down to the composition. Sure. Um, I, I typically co-produce, like, in the way that Albini, he, uh, from what I've heard, he doesn't want bands to even put his name on it because he right. believes it's their work. Yeah. So he doesn't want people to get the impression that he did more than someone he, else he like, meant to do. Yeah, you know? yeah. So I kind of take that approach. I've seen firsthand, I've, I've worked as engineers with, as engineer for producers that, you know, I saw taking too much of a hands-on approach where they were really kind of not giving the band any say in mm-hmm. in the ideas that they had, and uh, I, I kind of didn't really like what I saw when I saw that, so I, I kind of made a pledge to myself that I would always, you know, even if, if I'm a co-producer, I'll give my input, but it's got to kind of, like, we got to bounce the idea off each other with the band, and I think that's where a lot of the great moments in the records that we've done here have come from. Um, but then, you know, there's plenty of records where I'm kind of hired as the guy that, like, the band has exactly what they want in mind, and I'm just there to get the best possible sound. And so, you know, like I said, case-by-case case basis. Do you have a preference to which experience, or do you like both and just make the most of both? I, I, I like them both, and I do. I make the most of both, for sure. Yeah, and just from, uh, you know, being in a lot of sessions and watching Mike do his thing, I'd say probably, like, the basic engineering necessity, aside from running the gear, is... The, that kind of overlaps, I guess, with producing a little is having to tell people if they're off pitch. Yeah. Or if they're absolutely. out of tune. Those are, you know, all essential things that you can't, whether you're a producer or not, be silent about. Yeah. Right. That's absolutely true. Yeah. Right. Because, I mean, unless you're intending to do an off pitch sound to, to make some kind of funky sound on the record, yeah. if you want to be on pitch, you want to be told if you're not. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I think people appreciate when, you know, I, I'm not like. I'm not harsh about it. <laughs> of course not. Um, uh, Matt, I want to talk to you a little bit. You mentioned earlier that you're kind of the BD side of it. Yeah. You're doing a lot of business development. Do you have a degree in business? Is that what you went to school for? I, um, well, I have one undergrad unrelated to music, but I um, recently, actually this past May, completed my master's degree in music business from NYU. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Awesome. And how did you find that? Uh, I found the program just by looking into it. I mean, it really, it, it was a great thing because, you know, I feel like a lot of people, when you go to undergrad, you just kind of have to. Everybody <laughs> else is doing it. You know, yeah. It's hard to know exactly what you want to do when you're like 17 years old, you know. So just after I got out of um, undergrad, you know, we were running the studio for many years and just seemed like a no-brainer to go for music business. So I searched out music business programs around the country and lo and behold, there was one right here. <laughs> that's, that's excellent. Yeah, NYU, I've heard, has great programs in the arts and uh, uh, I'm a big fan and advocate for them um, do it, I don't want to isolate your whole curriculum down to one thing but yeah. what's the biggest thing you think you pulled from that from that degree like taking that you know a series of courses like is there something that really stands out as like invaluable information that you can kind of break down and share with the listeners huh well that's, that's a good question because there's so many things that are important I mean there, obviously I think the fundamentals are most important, just understanding various types of copyright and what your rights are as a musician when you write a song, when mm-hmm. you record a song. Um, you know, we've actually, since I, uh, actually when I was still in school, we started a small record label and publishing company, and we have four artists signed right now. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, a trend from talking to artists, like a big part of it is definitely educating them on, you know, what the various rights are, what the various types of copyrights are, and sure. um, how you know our label and publishing company would overlap with that. I just think... As an artist, if you really understand those things, it's definitely much more advantageous to you um, if you're ever in a situation where you're talking to anybody, just to know what you're talking about, or even if you're trying to figure out ways to leverage um, what you've written in this you know, digital environment, for sure. And uh, do you find on the BD side that there are lots of crazy changes? Do you find it difficult to support and promote a studio like this? Because, mm-hmm. um, like, 
like I've I've worked with business development professionals in in advertising in general, but never really this closely to music. Like, especially since I'm sure it's not the same now as it even was five or ten years ago. Yeah. What would you say is the biggest hardship about working and developing a studio like this? Um, in terms of hardship, I mean, there there's the obvious market reality of recording sure. studios. I mean, that's you know that's definitely something you can't ignore, especially all the big you know big studios closing in New York City and you know. New York itself, I think a, a big thing has just been the cost of living has pushed out so many artists. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know there's a, a major initiative underway right now where New York State is just putting through the work some plan to um, to offer a tax incentive to studios, much like they do for movies. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So if you have a project that has you know over it's over five thousand dollar budget and you hire five people or more to work on the project, they'll give you so like I think they'll reimburse you like all of your rent and uh, engineering costs. I so, mean, that sounds like a great idea. I feel like yeah. it, for, for, for physical spaces, there needs to be support from the space you're living in. Like, right. it, it's so much harder now to do that. I mean, no, uh, like you mentioned, you had a friend who has a record, uh, record studio. And, like, that's something, like, I feel like while vinyl is kind of back on, on the rise, Absolutely. CDs and cassettes are kind of done. And, you know, to own a record shop that's not literally records, if it's CDs and it's like a Sam Goody, like a lot of those places don't exist anymore. They're yeah. part of Best Buy, but like those places that just sold music yeah. don't really exist anymore unless it's a mom and pop shop in Manhattan, which there are still some around, but like they're kitschy or they have some kind of vintage thing going right. for them. Like, uh, I wor- you know, I worry too that like the physical recording space could go away. Now that said, as a self-promoting podcaster who doesn't have a home studio yet, my home studio is a dining room table, several chairs, and a, uh, uh, an acoustic curtain and some microphones. You know, I I am all about the DIY. Why? I guess maybe there's just something to bridge the gap between DIY and still self-sustaining business. And it mm-hmm. sounds like you guys have a good model for bringing artists in. Um, is there a particular um, record, I don't want to single out, like it's a Sophie's Choice to pick your favorite album you've done uh-huh. or your favorite artist you've worked with, but is there a particular moment that you're really proud of with this recording studio in particular that you would want to talk about, like whether it's recording a certain song or getting a certain thing done or making a, pa- a certain milestone, like something like that? Well, I mean, I'll start off and then maybe Mike will get some ideas too. <laughs> I mean, something we did here a few times, we haven't done it much just because of logistics of it, but something that's really fun is we have a emergency door in our live room that's like bolted shut. Mm-hmm. We've opened it a few times and there's a six-story stairwell there oh, that's wow. abandoned. So we use it. We've used it as a giant echo chamber, essentially, oh, where we cool. put in some microphones. Like we haven't done that in a long yeah, time. Yeah, we though. put put a micro. Yeah, if the landlords are listening. We don't do that. <laughs> uh, if you put you know a microphone in one floor up and then a few fo- floors down, and you're tracking drums and you have that massive, massive natural reverb, it's just yeah. there's nothing like it. That was on the the Brooklyn Mud record. Yeah, I think. Now it was on the Gimps. There's just and the Video Beast as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's tons of stuff, you know, from, like, I just love experimenting with sounds. I mean, we've tracked, like, you know, theremins. We have a pocket piano, which is really fun. We've yeah. tracked toy pianos. Um, we've, and I mean, I'm trying to think. There's tons of cool stuff. So. Yeah. If you guys really love unique sounds, I would recommend someone named Joseph Bertolozzi. He's a composer who I got to interview. He tracked the Eiffel Tower. I don't know if you heard about it. It's called Tower Music. He recorded individual strikes and sounds all over the Eiffel Tower and then composed music using those oh, that's notes. Cool. That's really he cool. also did it for the Mid-Hudson Bridge and that one's called 
uh, inventively, bridge music. And so if you haven't heard either of those, I highly recommend it because it's taking in individual strikes with different things, you know, different mallets and different sticks and different places, and then just using that as a composer to compuse, com compose, compuse, compose, <laughs> you know, these beautiful pieces that you often forget are just all percussion. So I highly recommend that. Cool. Um, yeah. No, you know, so, go ahead. Man. No, I was going to say, I have one other thing that Mike, I don't know if you want to jump off of this, but basically one thing that's a lot of fun too whenever we're tracking is just the amount of isolation we get in the live room. Yeah. You know, we, we, yeah, we have the versus the ability to have a, a drummer banging away on his drums, have guitar amp, you know, with the baffles that we build and uh, using different isolation techniques, have complete separation, even though they're in the same room. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, which yeah. is something, something we've honed over many years of mm -hmm. you know having full bands in a, in one live room. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we built those the the gobos in there. They're really heavy duty, and we built them with our dad. Like when we first started doing this, and they've been with us since since. Uh, Greenpoint, yeah, uh, and then um, yeah, yeah, that's a really good thing that I'm proud of that too. <laughs> every yeah. time it never gets old. Every time we uh, get a band going, and then I, you know, record, you know, a first take, and then I isolate the guitar, and I don't hear any drums on it, and I isolate the drums, I don't hear any guitar on it, and they're in the same room. It's always magic to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I can totally relate to that. Like. Um, not in the same way, obviously. I'm not. Uh, I don't own a studio, but uh, but when getting like mic upgrades or noticing a difference in sound, like we recorded with a condenser mic that was fairly old in an open room without an acoustic curtain, and like, you know, you could hear the echoiness of it. Mm -hmm. You know, thankfully, I've been listening to so many podcasts that people record with all different kinds of quality. It's more about the content than the quality, as long as you can hear the people. Mm -hmm. When we got our first high quality condenser mic the sound was like night and day mm -hmm. and there's nothing more proud than being able to hear that moment or, or watch yeah. that change happen I think that's really cool and I think that's still something you only get in like a physical space like I'm sitting here in a recording studio with both of you talking in person which I not that I don't love doing phone interviews or Skype interviews but I feel like there's a, a lot a little bit of a loss of chemistry chemistry unless you know the person already mm -hmm. if you're not in the same room like being in the same room with someone you can kind of play off them and I feel like with a recording studio it's the same way like lots of artists now will record something on their own and then send it to somebody else yeah. and then they'll add to it and i mean plenty of bands record drums and guitar separate at home and then send them to each other and mix together and i feel like you know some in some cases you can't even tell the difference but i feel like there's still something kind of indescribable about being in a physical space yeah. with other people recording yeah when you get a band playing together it's it's really that's why a lot of the artists that come to us they know we do that and they want to do that because you really can't replicate having you know a group of people in the same room playing together or looking at each other playing off of each other that's that's definitely yeah. true despite you know, all the changes in the music industry distribution etc i mean the recording studio is still the same you get a people a group of people in the room and you're trying to like catch magic basically yeah that's lightning in a jar <laughs> <laughs> lightning in a bottle yeah. um when you guys record an album do you guys since you said you produce some of these records as well um how do you guys do distribution from a recording studio standpoint because that's actually something I've never understood really on a small scale like I know CD Baby does a lot of it for yeah. the online stuff now and that kind of stuff but how if, if you guys have produced a record it's done it's finished how do you distribute it is that up to the band is that up to you is well, it a partnership well that's a good question that's kind of really what led us to start the record label what kind of you know the inception moment that gave me the idea of like well maybe I should you know go back to school and learn a lot more because we had a ton a ton of bands came through they finished the recording process and they were like, all right, 
we're done. But in reality, that's just the beginning. They yeah. was put up online for free, tell their friends and family, check it out, have like a three-day shelf life, and it was done. Um, so yeah, really an you know, endeavor to learn that answer. Well, what what do I do now? And you know, so um, so the the recording studios role in that isn't as I say as essential as the record label role in that. You know, right. like yeah. we'll we'll definitely give a band some advice if you know we're just simply recording it. You know, because all our, it's in all of our interest to see it get heard by as many people as possible. Sure, but in course. terms of you know getting it out there, it's really you know that happens more in the record label level. But really, you know, it's. It definitely is a lot of like online stuff, a lot of CD Baby, some physical um, this and that. But actually, we just had a really cool release about two weeks ago, mm-hmm. and it really gets down to you know trying to to create something special and something unique, and to leverage the digital space in a unique way, and not just you know put it up and say we're on iTunes. So had this artist named Tori Hanna. Mm-hmm. His band is Tori Hanna and the Pond Ciders. <laughs> That's like sitting by the side of a pond, not like drinking cider. Um, <laughs> so anyway, so he has a great album called Learning to Share. And the whole, you know, he's a very positive guy. The whole concept of sharing and uh, being hopeful and everything is, like, persistent throughout the album. He had one song in particular that he made with the Make-A-Wish Foundation in mind. Oh, cool. Yeah, so, you know, he's a really, really sweet guy. Lives up in the Berkshires in Massachusetts. So we had this idea to do the release two weeks, do two-week exclusive on Bandcamp, pay what you want with a portion of the proceeds going to the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Foundation. Right. Sure, and brilliant. Actually, tomorrow... Um, this being Friday the 9th, all of the, uh, it's going to be available on all DSPs, which is, you know, really cool, but we had the two-week exclusive period, and we got, you know, definitely a ton of great exposure, a lot of people really, you know, open up their wallets and their hearts, much more so if we just would have said, hey, check us out on Spotify, and got right. .004 cents per stream and everything, but, you know, really at this stage in the game, it's like, you're either about making revenue or about growing your fan base. You sure, know? yeah, it's hard to do both sometimes. Um, not, yeah, it's an established act. Did you guys get any buzz from uh, Make a Wish Foundation on that? Um, sadly to say, not so much. They're you know they're a very big organization. They're sure. very strict about like you know not wanting us to use their name in the promotion. So maybe I shouldn't be saying their name right now. Yeah, <laughs> right, sure. Um, I'm sure it's fine. Um, just censor that out. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's it's totally cool. But no, we we have been in talks with them about you know possibly syncing the song, and we're still in talks with them about Got that. It. So cool. yeah. Right. Well, you know, I think I think it's still cool and a great idea to do that. I mean, I've noticed a lot of indie artists will say, "Hey, all of my stuff is pay what you want for 24 hours." to celebrate this many albums or this much mm-hmm. stuff and a lot of people will if you don't tell them what to buy will spend more it's really interesting like I've noticed it in the gaming space as well like the idea of a free to play game and that if you offer X amount of stuff to someone but also someone who has nothing can also play mm-hmm. the people who have less might still pay more than they would mm-hmm if they couldn't play it at all because they couldn't get onto it yeah. at all and so I think like these bands that release albums for free just to promote themselves and to get themselves out there I think is you know is not terrible you know it's right. it's much I feel like it's much easier to make money face to face in person playing live than it is on a record these days mm-hmm. especially Definitely. since stuff like Spotify which I mean we use Spotify to listen to albums I pay for Spotify because we use it to listen to albums for mm-hmm. my review show because I mean buying all of the albums we do every year would be you know, I mean, it, it would be unaffordable, you know. Yeah, no it, doubt. It, and so, 
but it bums me out that when we listen to that album, even if me and both my co-hosts each listen to that album ten times, they're getting such a fraction of money for it. I mean, it's better than people stealing the record and yeah. then you're getting nothing. Well, the, the the industry went through many years of that happening. Yeah, right. everyone ripped on Lars Ulrich when he said it. You know, like yeah. when he was talking down Napster, but it really did like have a, a pretty bad impact on the industry. For well, sure. it's easy to be a kid and go, you know, fuck you, Lars Ulrich. Yeah, exactly. I want. I don't have any money. I'm poor. I want to listen to your music don't yeah. you care but uh, like now that I'm an adult and I'm friends with a lot of musicians and like you know I've worked with a lot of artists and musicians it's like the stuff take, costs money to make mm -hmm. and so you want to get something back and it's not that unreasonable it's not like like yes was it a little foolish for someone like Lars Ulrich to, to kind of complain about not making money yeah. yes but but it still does a trickle down effect well, everybody the, the damage was done I mean yeah. it's like you know now we are at a point where we're having to rebuild and it's like just getting those fractions of a cent from streaming is yeah. better than someone pirating it. So yeah. it's like we're maybe slowly it'll start to go up and the industry will figure out a way to make more money on it, but uh, at least it's something. You know? Right. I feel like I'm less involved in the conversation now, so maybe it still is popular, but I don't know about it. But like I remember coming up, Torrance, you know, which is the main way to pirate stuff these days. I did air quotes for the listeners because you can't see us. <laughs> um, you know, and there shouldn't be any air quotes. It is piracy. But like, like, I remember being involved in that conversation because, of course, you know, officially, unofficially, I pirated movies and music. Like, when you don't have access, you want that stuff because you want to hear it and support it. Mm -hmm. You go by any means. But, like, I feel like that conversation's died down a bit. I feel like less people are stealing music and movies. Yeah. I could be wrong, you know, but I feel like it is definitely less common now because iTunes has made it so simple. Spotify has made it so simple. And, and I Netflix. think that's I mean, Netflix. both industries have definitely adapted. Yeah. And I think while it's still not a perfect system, mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at advertising, advertising is a completely imperfect system. Nobody knows how to advertise in social media. Like, it, mm -hmm. some of it works, some of it doesn't. You know, I'm glad to see the industry at least starting to adapt a bit. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt about that. I mean, the biggest challenge right now, the biggest hurdle is YouTube. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people are talking about what's called the value gap. And, you know, I was just reading about this the other day, and the numbers are really staggering. YouTube last year had an estimated global um, user base monthly of 900 million people listening to music. Spotify had worldwide 68 million people listening oh, wow. to music. YouTube brought in 4% of the global music industry's revenue, whereas Spotify, I don't know the number offhand, but basically anybody who's got a math out there, $15 billion industry, Spotify brought in $2 billion of yeah. their 68 million people, YouTube brought in $630 million of their 900 million people. Yeah. So it's, it's you know, the safe harbor laws are really, you know, allowing them to, to you know, leverage the content creators in an unfair way. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I watch a lot of stuff on YouTube. I mean, honestly, I watch YouTube like I watch TV now. Like, yeah. I know certain people's release certain stuff at certain times, and I watch it, you know, and now with YouTube Red, like, a lot of people me are like, oh, paying for YouTube, how dare they? It's <laughs> like, yeah, but they want to be able to, you know, continue to build their business. And, mm. you know, like now releasing YouTube music and you need YouTube Red and you have to pay for it, whereas Spotify you can have for free on the phone, but you have less freedoms. Right. Like, you know, it's easy to get outraged when you're young and you have not a lot of income and you think you're righteous but as an adult it's kind of hard to walk that line yeah, like it's hard to as someone who watches YouTube for free I don't want to pay for YouTube because I'm already getting inundated with ads and sure mm -hmm. the ads would go away but like I'm already paying for Hulu and Netflix mm -hmm. and you know a PS the PlayStation Network and World of Warcraft like all of these subscriptions and I don't want to pay for another yeah. but on the same level I want YouTube to be 
begin to to continue rather to grow and build because I want them to be able to be fair to their content creators and support them, and I want to be able to continue to watch the content I've been watching for so long. That's some of it is of better quality than what I could find on TV. We, yeah, we actually have a YouTube channel. Oh, do you? <laughs> yeah, oh, great. We uh, figured it's a good good jumping off yeah, point. Good segue. Yeah, we. Uh, <laughs> We started producing our own original content. Um, it's a series right now. This is our first foray into it. It's called Uncomfortable Covers. Mm -hmm. And that's probably where you saw that's the That's the video I saw, yes. Yeah, so we get these bands to come in, um, and basically the idea is for them to cover something way outside of their comfort zone. And uh, I think that's brilliant. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been great so far. We had Milk Dudes. They were, they're like an electronic duo. They came in and did Kokomo. That was the one that was sent yeah, to me. That, that was, that was awesome. fantastic. Yeah, like, it's like a totally different take on the song. And, but awesome. it sounds so good. And I mean, the song itself is not hyper complex, so it's built to be built on. Mm -hmm. And it's so cool to see that. Because you don't really think of that. Listening to Kokomo is just a smooth, kind of enjoyable sweet song but then listening to what they did with it yeah, was really it was incredible cool. and is the is the youtube channel um just continental studio uh yeah if you search continental recording Record, studio, recording yeah studio. you'll find it i don't know the url I, I think they're probably all numbers and letters if you guys <laughs> uh shoot me an email with the url i'll put it in the post when it goes up on tuesday that's not a problem Sick, cool. but um but that's really fascinating and i think like i think that's the secret to kind of surviving beyond like we have a youtube channel too which used to just be video audio files of the podcast like mm -hmm. we put a static image and then just put the audio file as video but we're trying to think of original content that we can produce cheaply because like yeah some people i'm sure listen to podcasts on youtube but I'm pretty sure most people are listening to them elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And so, like, I'd like to have some kind of cool video content to share. But also, I don't want to do another vlog. There's a million of those, mm -hmm. you know, and stuff like that. And so I think this Uncomfortable Covers thing is kind of brilliant. A, as a fan of covers, um, if you go to my Spotify uh, uh, page, Shameless Plug, for Matt Storm, I have a, a, a playlist that's public called Kick-Ass Covers. And it's literally just some of the most bizarre covers I found. Like, um, there was this guy who was on an overseas version of, I think, uh, uh, um, American Idol, who did kind of like a rock gospel version of um, Living on a Prayer, but he's got nice. this like kind of grungy, kind of almost rock voice, and it's it's just one of the most awesome versions of that song yeah. I've heard. And so like I always love when I can find a band who does a cover of like doing an homage to a song is fine, and I've loved plenty of those covers too. But when you take it and make it your own, yeah, I think, and that's what the spirit of uncomfortable covers is: is you're right. taking a song that is way outside your frame of reference exactly. and making it your own. And I think that's a great idea. And when you hear it from that different angle too, it really, you know, is a testament to how good the song is. Because like when you hear a song come through like a different genre, and the song is still really awesome, it, like you start to notice how great the song is yeah there, there's a cover and i'm gonna blank on the band now although i've seen them live a few times now um that does a cover of every breath you take by the police which is a creepy song to begin with you know it's <laughs> it's very stalkery but they're kind of like a hardcore metal act okay. and they sing it and he like he sings the verse with melody and then screams these choruses nice. and you get even more emotional response out of that song and it's way more aggressive and awful when you hear it in that light like in the best way mm -hmm. and so I, i'm all for those kinds of covers i think that you know you learn a lot about yourself as a musician you learn a lot about the song like listening to that version of kokomo i i noticed things in that song tonally you know and 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 rhythm wise that you know in vocally even that i never noticed before mm -hmm. it was done in that different way yeah exactly <laughs> and it's just it's it's, a, it's i think it's a good spotlight on um 
openness and acceptance of stuff. Like, I, I have this this saying that you sh- music should never be a guilty pleasure. You should never feel bad about the music you like, unless of course it's problematic. I like that. You know, like uh, you know, bands who make songs about you know that racist songs and stuff like that, yeah. like problematic stuff aside, you should like what you like. I'm I have the freedom to say it's not good. But, but you should still like it, like the whole Nickelback thing and that they're terrible. And I do believe they're not good musicians, and I could give you technical breakdowns as to why. I'm not just going to go, oh, they suck, because that's not an answer. <laughs> but if you like Nickelback, I'm not going to give you hell about it, because you like them. You find something in them, even if it's cookie cutter, you find something in it. And I think, I think um, you know, what you guys are doing here speaks to the spirit of just embracing what you love about music. And I think that's important. I think a lot of people forget that with, like, American Idol and, like, all these pop stars. And, some, like, I give Taylor Swift the credit she's due. The songs she writes are tight. The ones that she has written and the songs that she releases are tight. And, they, you know, they're emotional and they're, they're well-crafted. Like, I may not be a fan of all of them, although I like some of them. I'll openly admit on live air, for better or worse. <laughs> But, you know, I respect that. You know, you know, I have less respect for the older boy bands who didn't do anything. Like, they just followed the leader. You know, whereas Justin Timberlake now makes incredible music on his own with brilliant producers. And so it's, you know, it's different. And I think you should just kind of be open-minded about music in general because that's the only way you learn. I mean, I, th- I think what we're talking about here is like a uh, freedom of listening. It's, yeah. It should be an amendment. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think you know, it really ties in, too, with the ethos of the studio because we really, you know, one of our goals and one of our values is really to give each band the same level of attention as if they were Iron Maiden that just walked in. You know, right, yeah. sure. We're not, you know, it's our passion and love for music just, you know, makes that necessity that if you come in here, we're not viewing you like a, a dollar sign and like, you know, <laughs> oh, it's it's 10.01, like, you know, get the fuck out. Like, yeah. Yeah, we really do care and really just, you know, have that level of passion and care in every project. Yeah, we want people to really feel like what they're doing is important because we feel like it's important to us and we know it's important to them and when they know that it's important to us um it, it shines through the performance oh sure. i'm sure yeah. Absolutely. yeah i feel like with the modern internet culture it's very easy to comment on stuff saying oh this is bad and, yeah you know you suck and it's gonna happen it's not 100%. support it, like the internet space is is both the best and worst thing to happen to music because while some of the most incredible stuff that would have never seen the light of day is now coming out also some of the worst stuff and the worst trolls are also surfacing and mm. you know i just I'm all about a supportive community, and that's what it sounds like you guys are generating here. Um, do you have any, as we start to kind of wrap up the interview, do you guys have any big plans for the future, big announcements you may want to make, or just stuff that you're working on as far as where you want to take this? All right, well, let me think for a second. <laughs> I mean, uh, no, I, or, or more along the lines of, like, you know, obviously you have a great setup that looks awesome in here, you know. Mm-hmm. The sound of the stuff that you guys have recorded is great. But, you know, like, to the YouTube space you're doing, the uncomfortable covers, is there more stuff you'd want to do in the video space? You know, would you ever want to film the artist recording stuff here? Mm-hmm. Like, what, what kind of next steps do you want to do as far as branching out? Well, those are really all, those are great ideas in themselves, too. <laughs> uh, I may mean, take some of those. But, um, no, I mean, you know, we have some, some really cool releases coming out through the label that I'm really excited about. We've been, you know, uh, putting a lot of effort into that. We have uh, this one great guy, Brett Ferguson. He's releasing his album. He just got back from backpacking through Europe for a few months, so he took oh, a wow. little hiatus. We have uh, John Severn and the Quiet Ones that are coming out. So, you know, I'm, on my side, I'm having a lot of fun playing around with those. And it's always been a dream of ours, you know, to open an L.A. affiliate of the studio <laughs> and, that, and really, really take a Continental, you know. Yeah, sure. the name Continental Recording. We kind of had that in mind when we thought of the name, you know. Gotcha. Yeah. Of spreading it, yeah. And, and was the name just something that you guys kind of just came up with, or is there a history behind yeah. it? I mean, we when we were 
you know, playing in our band back, like, in high school and a few years after, we were playing a, a lot around the city, and we used to play the Continental a lot, and mm-hmm. we loved that place. And then, you know, when we were trying to kind of come up with a name, because before we even called it Continental, in 08, it wasn't called anything. It was just our studio. Right. And we were running through all these different names, and nothing really felt right. It was like, you know, we, we were like, we want a name that'll sit up there with, like, Capital Studios yeah. or, like, Universal or something like that. So we, we thought of the Continental, and we, you know, it's like every good name we came up with before that, we would search it, and it already exists. Existed, sure. So this one, we, we searched it, and we were like, whoa, I can't believe this doesn't exist. <laughs> we just kept searching, we are like, it doesn't exist. So mm-hmm. we're like, let's do it, and that's really where it came from. Yeah, and to just add on to that, I mean, the Continental is a place where, like, Iggy Pop performed, and a lot of, like, story sure, artists in the yeah. 70s played. So we really, you know, influences. kind of, yeah, a lot of our influences and building up that vibe, and especially where we are, our location, it's, you know, it's right next to, the you know, the gentrification of Long Island City, and you have the beautiful skyline view, but it's also a little gritty, too. It's a little, mm-hmm. you know, more, like, traditional New York City, which is something that, you know, definitely, you know, builds off of the, the background of the name. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Um, and so, you brought You mentioned a label a couple times. Is it, uh, you know, this is the label the same name as the studio? Uh, it's actually, it's called Electric Giant Productions. Electric Giant Productions. Yeah. So I just want to make sure I got that out there, too, because we'd yeah. like to promote yeah. that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, um, I guess, so you mentioned some artists that are coming out on the label that you're promoting. Do you have any bands that you're working with right now, besides the one you mentioned earlier, that have full releases that are coming out that you'd like to kind of give a heads up about? Um, working on this great stuff right now. I'm, I'm recording it, and then our other engineer, Phil, will be mixing it. And uh, that, that guy's name is Jordan Ziskin, and mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a solo album for him, and that's a really awesome project that I'm excited about. Cool. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, um, and uh, I guess... You know, before we, we, we wrap up, finally, tell the folks out there where they can find you on the internet. Um, mention the website again. All right, our website is www.continentalrecording.studio. That's right, dot .studio. <laughs> yes, and then the, for the, the record label, it's electric-giant.com. Awesome, and yeah. you guys are on Facebook, you said you're on Twitter, though mm-hmm. less active, you're on Instagram, YouTube, um, I really appreciate you guys taking the time to chat. Thanks for having um, us. You know, if you ever want to review an album, I'll get you on the air saying, you know, please come do that, we record out at my apartment in, in Brooklyn, and we'd love to have you, you just have to agree on something to bring on. Alright. Um, but uh, but it's been a pleasure having you, and um, I guess I, the last thing I would ask is, we have a saying on the podcast, on both podcasts, it's a saying I came up with. God, like decades ago now, which is scary, called, mm-hmm. and the, the saying is that we live by is music is life and life is good. Very simple. Uh, if you guys could split that task and do my sign off for me, I would greatly appreciate it. Cool. So, do you want me to do the first part or do it at the same time? Uh, you could do it either way, however you guys want it. <laughs> I'll do the first part. All right. This is Matt, and music is life. And life is good. This is Mike. We're at Continental Recording Studio. If you enjoyed these interviews, please subscribe to this and the Crash Chords podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. You can also like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to post in the comment area below each post. And keep the discussion going, because remember, music is life, and life is good.